97% of salespeople are missing this one thing that if they only knew it would allow them to close 75% more sales. It has nothing to do with charisma, the gift of gab, or whatever else you've been told. Because if you're trying to convince your customer, that means they don't want to buy, which means you've already lost the sale. What sales professionals do is sell customers exactly what they want to buy. They work with the customer to uncover their current challenges, the consequences of those challenges, and how that's impacting them. They then help the prospect describe the ideal solution to their problems, what that looks like, and how that perfect outcome will impact them. And once they can picture that perfect outcome, price is irrelevant. That's right. Sales professionals sell customers exactly what they want to buy because it's easier dealing with a happy customer than dealing with a customer who felt sold. So here's the deal. I explain everything in my live two-day sales workshop, June 14th and 15th in my office. Go to closemoresales.com workshop and you'll be able to close more sales as soon as you get back. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we have Jake Harris with Catching Knives, and he flew in from Sacramento to talk about how he's done $200 million in projects and over $250 million actively in developments. If this is your first time tuning in, I am Steve Trang, sales trainer for some of the top wholesalers in the country, and I'm on a mission to create 100 millionaires. One question I get all the time is how to become one of the millionaires. The information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, you will become one. If you want to get there a little bit faster, send me a message on Instagram and we'll see if we can help you. And the show is brought to you by Investor Lift. So please, if you want to get 10% off, get access to 2 million cash buyers across the country, go to InvestorLift.com, put in Disruptors, and you'll get 10% off. And if you get value today out of the show, please tag your friend below or share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And before I forget, we are hiring. So if you guys are interested, go to disruptors.com slash hiring. Uh, so this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Jake to answer. You ready? I'm ready. All right, so first question is, what got you into real estate? Uh, so that is a an interesting question. I was in the Army. I was doing uh, air assault infantry, and I was just kind of winding down my career in the military. and. I wanted to do something. Uh, I didn't know what it was. I actually thought it was maybe marketing. And so I was kind of taking some classes related to marketing and somebody gave me a, a purple and gold book, said, hey, Sarge, check this out. And they threw this book to me and it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And it was one of those light bulb moments in my life where it kind of crystallized uh, a lot of skills that I already kind of had naturally and then layered into like, this is what I want to do. And, mm -hmm. and, and the people that have read it, most people in real estate, that's I've found that now got their start by reading that book is it's not, you know, groundbreaking or super, you know, uh, high financial IQ, but it's just, it, it solidifies something in that light bulb moment. And so yeah, it's from, enlightening. Yeah. And from that moment on, it was, I could see even my past, uh, you know, fixing up houses that my, my parents, we lived in uh, to that point in the army. And it was like, this is what I want to do. And so that's really started my journey of being a, a real estate investor, you know, real estate, kind of everything. So you were actively serving. I was. And you read this book and then you you started right away or did you have to like wait until you finished your Yeah, so I was just service? finishing up and okay. uh, just getting out and it was soon after. So I actually went into another business, uh, a retail business did um, trophies. So we'd make like the soccer awards, you mm -hmm. know, like you thing. And then it was like, I wanted to be a businessman. Uh, as I kind of got into that, 
soccer moms will cut your throat for a nickel. Uh, they're so done at, you know, soccer by the end of the year that, you know, they're just kind of like, what do I have to do to get this over with? There's been so many games and, you know, of course, uh, you probably know, uh, but kids and the spelling of their names was insane you know mm. like nick with a you know a, a click sound and an r all x you know and you're right. like what how who spells their kids name like that but it was uh i knew i didn't want to do retail uh, business and that's kind of i emerge out of that i didn't it took me a long time actually to kind of put together the the foundational knowledge to get there uh, I went and started bartending at a country club. I wanted to be a bartender as well. And instead of hanging out in nightclubs, I wanted to use relationships of people in, in real estate. And what I wanted to do, and I went in there and I said, hey, you know, I'm 23. Uh, I'm ready to go grab the tiger by its tail. I mm. want to do real estate development. I want to build skyscrapers. And and uh, But this all happened, like you went from military to trophies to bartending and then real estate yep so you write about the real estate book yes and then you didn't do real estate took me a while <laughs> was there was there any particular reason i felt like i didn't know uh what to do and yeah. so while i wanted to do that i was had very limited resources uh, and, and obviously like things that you teach, like mm -hmm. it didn't exist out there, like how well, to wholesale a deal. Like I was like, I didn't even know what that was. Well, I'm giving you some ribbing here. Right. But because the truth of the matter is at that time, it wasn't like, like you said, like it wasn't readily available or other people too. Uh, and I put myself in this category, you know, like I'm trying to get in real estate and then I go get my real estate license. Like mm. that's actually not a necessary step. Sure. So we have this book, which is very eye opening, but it's not an instruction manual. Correct. Right. So yeah, so you you went through you saw this and you kind of went all these different directions. And then eventually you started doing real estate. Eventually. Okay. So and I got advice from a guy. Uh, he was a, a, a developer built a lot of uh, military housing and projects for the military. And I asked him, I said, Hey, what, what would you do if you're 23? And he said, construction. All he right. said, construction and a contractor is involved in every version of real estate. I don't care if you're remodeling, flipping a house, doing a kitchen, you're building a skyscraper, you're building a new subdivision, a contractor is involved in everything real estate. And he's like, I've just found that the guys that come from the trades immediately have a leg up on everyone else that learned it from the books, learned it. You can go to college, you can go to these other things and learn these things. But the guys that actually come from the trades know and really it's an interesting dichotomy of a relationship is you're kind of after the same dollar, mm -hmm. the same profit margin that's only exists in this. And you're kind of partners, but you're kind of against each other to try to get it's that adversarial same adversarial and, but you need each other. Yeah. And, and so he just said that contractors want to make as much money as possible. And so by having that baseline foundational knowledge of how things get built, how they work, what they cost, you're going to have a leg up and it's it and so i talked my way into a, a, a estimators a commercial contractors estimator position I, I didn't have the skills i didn't have the education but you know i badgered and was very persistent to the president of the commercial construction company and convinced him to give me a job ultimately i told him i'd work for free 
uh, he pay, he paid me, but mm-hmm. I was like, I, I can do this. And that was the, the confidence that I just had in myself of figuring things out. Sounds like it was a W-2 job, though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, W-2 job, working as an estimator, and um, this is before Google. Mm-hmm. So, like, they came in and said, all right, go do some takeoffs for these, these the TIs. And I was like... I don't know what any of those words are that you just <laughs> said. <laughs> yeah. uh, what What do you mean by takeoff? And can you give me an example of it? And it was, you know, to do quantities of attendant improvement that was being worked on. And so it was like, oh, math, adding up square footages and other things. I'm good at this. Okay, I can do that. And how long did you do that before you? A year. A year. Yeah. And I'm guessing that job probably was really helpful in learning development. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was your first real estate transaction? Uh, I bought a house down here in Phoenix. Okay. So it was because I was working in the, the Bay Area, East Bay. I was working for Equity Office Properties was our main client. Sam Zell didn't know who he was at the time, but, you know, they were remodeling office buildings. I couldn't afford... For those that don't know who he is. Sam Zell, for those that don't know, he's a billionaire uh, primarily a distressed investor. His mm-hmm. his nickname is the the Grave Dancer. Uh, so in your book or in my book, I actually uh, reference that him uh, mm-hmm. that kind of see some of these parallels. Uh, very very interesting character. He has a book called "Am I Being Too Subtle." Uh, you know, he just looked to see where there's opportunity when there's a, a disconnect from the the true value. I've then taken that throughout my career and, you know, my experiences. He, again, I didn't know him when I worked to the construction. I didn't even know who Sam Zell was, but I was doing that work. You couldn't afford anything, or I couldn't afford hardly anything in the Bay Area. As a side hustle, I was buying cars at auction. And so I'd come down here and I came to Phoenix to buy cars at auction. And I happened to... Uh, spend an extra day and there was the Westgate was announced and the university well, it's University of Phoenix Stadium as the Cardinal Stadium was mm-hmm. being built over in Glendale and I went and toured some of the houses and they were like a hundred thousand dollars hundred and fifty thousand dollars and I was like you can't buy an outhouse <laughs> in California in the Bay Area for a hundred hundred fifty thousand dollars and I was like oh I can actually afford these houses i can afford to buy this house here and so i bought my first house in glendale uh right across the street from the the westgate uh, and i just said i've seen development like this happen and then see values go up so you buy this as a buy and hold no just to flip it okay how'd that go uh, it went really well i made 20 grand uh, awesome what which is interesting is there was a little bit of a the plan was to fly down on the weekends and mm-hmm. fix it up myself. I got laid off waiting for a bunch of permits on some. Uh, I was going to build a, a shopping center, a strip center, just a stick built kind of one in uh, in California. But we were held up waiting for permits. And so they said, hey, we're going to let you go. And I was like, I just bought a house. <laughs> like I kind of need. So I threw a few tools in the back of my truck. I didn't even have a, a bed or hardly anything. And I drove to the house and I slept on the mattress that the realtor gave me. I didn't have a refrigerator there. So I got one of those styrofoam coolers mm-hmm. and I would get bags of ice and then put like some uh, sandwich meat or some other things while I fixed up, fixed up the house. I then 
got a job with a guy doing kitchen and bath remodels. And we did a lot of uh, high-end kitchen bath remodels throughout the valley. And I did that for then a, another kind of couple of years and would flip houses on the side. And I would, you know, during the day, go put in, you know, granite and uh, stuff out in Vistancia or, you know, or Ahwatukee or Anthem or wherever. And this is, again... I was actually just talking to my Uber driver about this. I was like, this is before like you had Google maps and, and smartphones. It was a Thomas guide. And mm -hmm. so I was flipping through Thomas guides, trying to find my way around Phoenix. And uh, as so I you, flipped you houses, flipping houses here, you didn't live here yet. And so you moved here. So you made 20 K in your first one. How were you doing the other flips? So each one progressively got better and better and better and better and so, so why were you working doing other work i quit yeah I, and that's where the realization was at one point i looked around and i was like i just made seventy five thousand dollars flipping a house in surprise that all i did was paint the kitchen and put some doors on the den and make it a fifth bedroom i need to quit and just focus on this full time and so that's how long did it take for you to have that realization um, it took a few houses. It took, you know, I, I probably made a couple hundred thousand dollars before it was just kind of like, why, why my dollar cost per average of the thing of what I'm doing over here is wasting. I'm missing out on deals doing this. And, and maybe it was that little bit of that security blanket of, yeah. of knowing that there was going to be a paycheck coming in every couple of weeks that I could uh, be banking on um and so i quit i just yeah and I, I think that's not unusual you know there are a lot of people that yeah there's yeah, proof of concept but this like i need to bank a few more and there's always like a few more just a few more if you've got that you know low risk tolerance profile like yeah real estate's for you but you just need to have a little bit more in the bank account uh so you quit your job you're flipping houses full-time Everything got better up until about 07, 08, you know, it was yeah. fantastic. And, uh, I became a millionaire, you know, your, your goal as far as getting a bunch of people a millionaire, I go, and I'm going to tell you something. It's easy to become a millionaire. It's much harder to maintain that millionaire status. Oh, it's a different skill. Yeah. It's a totally different ball game. And so mm -hmm. my goal was to be a millionaire before 30 and I achieved it. Yeah. But then I took off the gas. I stopped doing things. I got you know, fat, I got lazy, uh, uh, you know, it was like you had, I'd achieved it. And, and it's you figured it out. I figured it out. And it was, but the, the reality is that, you know, goals are great for setting a, a direction, but you need a system to have consistent levels of success. And so yeah. for, if you just want to achieve and flip a house, great, you do that and then you're done. But what about developing a system? And this, these are just trial and error things that I've learned from bashing my head up against the brick wall over and over again. And it's, it's a journey that I'm still on to this day. But part of it also, some of your success was that you had the wind behind your sails, right? Um, now you're flipping houses. So you weren't keeping any of these yet. Correct. So when the crash hit, well, I, I, at that, when the crash did hit, I had a portfolio. I had 10 houses all throughout Phoenix. Yeah, 10 houses, uh, all fully leveraged. Oh, yes. All right, because that's what we knew at the time. Yeah. Like, maximize your leverage. Oh, absolutely. So they're all like 100% or we're like 110%. 
couple were maybe 105 or something like it was just like wait you're gonna give me money to buy a house like this yeah. sounds amazing what could go wrong with this well i mean the party will never stop of course right. real estate never goes down and actually at that point i'd i'd met robert kiyosaki and mm -hmm. i started you know i'd hang out at his studios over in scottsdale a little bit and he kept warning like man like this you know buying negative cash flow deals you know the real estate market's prime for for a correction and I was just like, man, what's this guy like? He's just cranky. Yeah, I was just like kind of cantankerous <laughs> guy that's like shouting at the sky. It's going to fall down. It's going to fall down. And I was like, he just doesn't know. Like I, the market would have to go down like 20% for me to you know, lose money because I've been buying stuff at a discount and I was doing things subject to. And I, I was just, I, I just had never um, experienced or seen uh, and really I'll take you kind of a, a moment forward and up, up to maybe a few years ago, what, maybe five years ago, uh, whenever Ray Dalio's book principles came out mm -hmm. is, uh, I saw him in an interview and he said, you know, when, when Reagan became president, he shorted the market heavy. He shorted the market because he thought all of the, um, debt that the U.S. had, and especially foreign debt, was going to default, and the market was going to crash, and it was just going to be exasperated from what Carter had done before, and it bankrupt him. It, mm -hmm. He lost everything. He had to let everybody go, you know, down, had to borrow money from his dad, and he said, we're really what it, it broke down to was, he said, he made his investment thesis based on only his experiences of his lifetime when he actually dove into details of market cycles greater than his life, he said 80 years or 100 years before, something exactly to what happened during the Reagan administration in the U.S. had happened, and it the market took off and took off like a rocket ship. Yeah. And it was, to me, I was sitting there, and it was like getting hit over the head with a two-by-four, another one of those, and I was just like, oh, am I only making investment decisions based on my understanding of the world in mm. my lifetime yeah, just your reality and then so it took me and it's been a several year process of deep diving into every market cycle in the history of the united states what caused it to go up what caused it to crash what caused it to and and there's a lot of similarities the savings and loan crisis looks almost exactly like the subprime meltdown mm. like what happened how it ran up you know and so these kind of evolve over and over again and so now it, it, at least for me, um, was there some leading indicators for when the market's going to distress beforehand? So before we get into all that, yeah, you lose everything, everything. Well, yeah, I, I was sitting on a street you corner. You didn't, you didn't keep all 10 properties. I know I lost everything. I, I sold off most everything. I came down the last two houses and, uh, because I had cash. And so I was coming to closing, like writing a check for 10 grand to get out of it. Then the next one was 20 grand and then 30 and then 50. And then, and I ran out of money before I ran out of houses. Mm -hmm. And uh, so my one other house and a personal residence uh, went to foreclosure. And it, it really came down to, I just, uh, you know, hindsight, I wish I would have uh, stopped earlier and just kept the cash and <laughs> well, I would have been in a better position. But it goes uh, back to what you know in your lifetime. Yes. So, I, um, so would, it be, would this be fair to say that you, you bottomed out in your career at this point? 
Yeah, I, I, I remember sitting on a street corner very vividly down in Tucson, down from the campus of, of uh, U of A. What are you doing in Tucson? Had a house flip in an Adobe house down there. Um, okay. All right, so you're at Tucson. Yeah, I'm down in Tucson fixing up this Adobe house, and I was just crying, and I was just like, dear Lord, can I be worth no money? Because I had a negative net worth. These houses aren't even worth. I have way more debt than they exist, and I had no idea how I was going to get out of it. And then soon after that, I just decided and made the business decision, like, I'm going to let these houses go to foreclosure. I can, you know, figure out, I, I bought houses without credit before. I mm -hmm. can figure out how to do that again. And uh, it, it led to a very introspective time in my life. And here's where another book that became very pivotal and, and uh, was The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. It came yeah. out. And... I didn't even have the money to go buy it or extra funds. And so I'd walk to the bookstore back when there was bookstores, like I would walk to the bookstore and I read the book, you know, for a few hours in the day mm. and set it back and walk home and then walk back to the bookstore and read the book again. Yep. And, um, for those that don't know, it is not about working a four hour work because how do you 10 X, you know, your uh, abilities and performance and leveraging systems or other people. And so for me, that was the next kind of level. Like, what did I do well? How did I buy these houses before and flip them? What did I do well? What did I not do well? And, and a lot of it broke down as I thought just being lazy, not reestablishing myself from my, my goals. Mm -hmm. Just sitting back on the laurels. I'd figured it out. I'm good. I'm going to. So before picking up that book, though. Yes. I mean, it wasn't like the next day while you were in Tucson. Like you, you had you had it. You're paying these out. Yeah. I imagine over the course of months, if not a year, mm -hmm. to get out of all these houses. Yeah. A lot of emotional strain. What kept you going? Because if there's one thing that's going to happen in real estate is you're going to get kicked in the gut over and over again. What were you telling yourself to keep yourself going? Because it's really easy sometimes to just like, you know what? I'm just going to go back and do something else. What kept you going? Yeah. Um, in that introspective kind of time, like you said, it was not instantaneous. It was months and months and months. And it was almost every aspect of my life. And really it broke down to, I felt like I was already bankrupt in many of the areas of my life, relationship, my brothers, you know, that who had moved down and worked with me said, Hey, Jake, you're an asshole. And oh. they left. Um, relationship, you know, that I, I thought I was going to get married, you know, we, we broke up, I was 100 pounds overweight, you know, because just living out having a good time. And so where I was myopically focused on this goal of being a millionaire a status, I had put blinders on to every other aspect of my life. And so it was a hard reset in every single area of my life. And so it just created is I needed to start doing and getting wins in one direction. And so started, you know, losing weight, going to the gym, you know, pouring time into reading and just discovering things that I, I didn't know because I, I, I was young and stupid and uh, naive. I thought I knew everything. I'd, you know, I'd unlocked the matrix and yeah. my dad gave me, um, I wouldn't say it was advice, but he was just kind of like, you're too smart for your own good. 
So you're able to find the hack or the shortcut in many of things. And so you didn't do the appropriate amount of work. Mm -hmm. Why I, I, I stressed on building systems and doing those things now is that it was that don't rely on your motivation. You need to fall back to the systems that you, you build out. And, um, so it was a hard reset on everything. I didn't know that I was going to necessarily get back into real estate as that, you know, dark kind of period of my life. And I looked around and I said, you know what, this is actually what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I said, well, if this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, I should really step up and start doing that. And so started reading more books about it or started getting more educated about it and, and, uh, layered in, I moved back to California, uh, because family was there and I, I needed, um, anything to, to start making money. Uh, so my brother and my cousin, we started doing construction and we literally do anything that people needed. No, any job, any job, no job was too small. Yeah. You know, you're the dumpster needs concrete poured under it and it go dig through the trash and move it out of the way because you know, these, this apartment, uh, you know, tenants are just throwing trash there. Go do that. And I was like, absolutely. We'll do it. Fence falling down in a windstorm. Do it. We would do it. But I then leveraged some relationships. My uh, college roommate, uh, was a VP of finance and, and that's kind of 08, 09. He worked for uh, a rich guy. Mm -hmm. Um, at least that's what he's a kind of a family office. Now mm -hmm. he had been a home builder. He had built 10,000 homes. Um, Lenar came in and bought him for three, $400 million in, in the early two thousands. He then ran Lenar's land division until 0506. It's and, a pretty attractive exit, by the way. Yeah, that is. And also, so now that he's got fresh, you know, uh, three, four hundred million dollars, he was JVing on many of these master plan communities all throughout California because he had publicly traded, you know, uh, Lenar money. And so you go, well, what am I going to do with all this money? Well, let's just chunk it down next to this. And so uh, he had. I don't know, 25,000 acres, you know, 10 shopping centers, uh, a whole gamut of, of lots, paper, some of them. And he was playing a much longer game, yeah. 20 years into the future. But he said, hey, I think it's time to start buying houses like the, the market is in 09. So distressed that you can buy things for the cost of the, the dirt and the permit and the house is free. Right. And yeah, so, we were buying land for, not me, people that I was working for, just buying for the cost of entitlement. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. So, um, so you, your, your roommate knew this guy and you started working with this guy. Yeah. So he worked for another home builder, got hired, uh, during kind of the, the collapse because they needed to improve their cash flows because mm -hmm. they were a little bit concerned that it's coming into a very dark time. Can you help, uh, improve cash flows? And they said, Hey, I know Jake, he knows how to flip houses. Like, why don't we start buying some of these houses and, and flipping them at scale? And, you know, again, uh, I would do anything. And so they said, Hey, would you like to, you know, start flipping houses, uh, at scale and started going to trustee sales. Oh, nine went to courthouse steps and, you know, 
did, I don't know, 1,200 houses in 23 states, not with that um, same kind of person. A lot of it was focused in the Central Valley, sold some of those um, single-family rental portfolios off to the institutionals, so Invitation Homes, Tricon, Colony, you know, all, all the, the big big wigs that came into mm-hmm. the area, and then I kind of scaled it uh, beyond that. And then... 2014, 2015, I got offered some some positions to, to run um, director acquisitions. Part of that because a lot of the portfolios that we bought and sold to them were some of their best portfolios. And they so said, before we get into that, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's an important, I think, part of the story because you probably learned some valuable skills along the way. Uh, maybe, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you go from replacing concrete underneath... Uh, a dumpster sure to actually helping them acquire properties now buying at auction that's just one piece of the puzzle correct you were helping them buy at auction in 23 states not at first so we started in sacramento mm-hmm. you know one county then two counties um because of being a well, maybe they, they call it now being an entrepreneur mm-hmm. you know it used to be a hustler or whatever i also had a construction company And I also did the listings and I did, you know, kind of uh, full service uh, that I could do. So I would buy them at auction and we'd fix them up and then we'd list them. Mm -hmm. And then as each component got to scale, uh, this uh, rich guy basically looked at the numbers and was like, hey, Jake, we're not going to give you the listings for that fee anymore because you're going to make a million dollars a year in commission. And I was like. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that was the plan. Yeah, that was kind of. And he's <laughs> like, well, I actually brought somebody in-house. We're going to list all our own houses. And then we'll, so we kind of restructured and you'll get a percentage uh, of profits. Mm-hmm. And so like each one kind of scaled. And so, but we're going to do 200 homes this year. Yeah. I was like, okay, well. In Sacramento. I, yeah, in Sacramento. And so it was, uh, I'd rather have a small piece of a very big uh, pie than, you know, all of a, a, a tiny little piece, uh, you know, or someone used the, the analogy, I would rather have a giant piece of a watermelon than uh, all of a grape. Right. So you started doing this in Sacramento, but then you said you're also in, in doing it in other states. And that was in time. Yeah, we scaled it. Um, actually, as I with the le- same guy, and you nope. said with someone we else. We left that, and then in 2014, 2015, I decided to go out on my own, create my own company, mm-hmm. and that's where we scale scaled nationally. And so, what uh, company was that? My company, uh, Harris Bay, is mm-hmm. is the uh, private equity company that we put together a distressed fund and said opportunistic investors, high net worth people, you can come in. Here's what we're going to do is we're going to scale this uh, across the country. What I found is, you know, some of my most successful exits were just getting a little bit in front of the institutional capital. So the, the Wedgwoods, the, you know, invitation homes, like where they weren't was where we could create some opportunity and move because it was just the mom and pa operators in some of these markets. And we come in and we're just like, we had a machine built. Yeah. I'd hired people away from title companies to do our own due diligence and our own underwriting. We, you know, had, you know, construction crews and we kind of built a system for this and we were very, you know, uh, laser focused on this. And then we started finding uh, through the Prado principle of here's the target type of, properties, you know, trustee sale things that we can dive into. And so 
that was another five, six year process that ended up being that we've done it in 23 states yeah. in, in total. You know, when those institutionals come in, man, they can ruin your, your good gig real fast. So what were some of the lessons you learned? Because I'm wondering if there's anything we learned that you learned at that time that applies to today. Yeah, so uh, there are a lot of things I think that apply to that is, you know, we're buying stuff at distressed prices at a discounting. So we were coming in and saying, hey, maybe it was 70 cents on the dollar is what we were kind of targeting on, mm -hmm. on a, a purchase price. To do that at scale is difficult when you're doing one you know, it's pretty easy to find something that's a distress in any market, anywhere USA, you can find something at a, you know, 30% discount to market value. But when you want to do five or 10 or 100 or wherever, you have to really, you know, uh, dive into to systems. I never got into wholesaling because I just would take them kind of full cycle. So I needed a consistent flow of deals and that's where trustee sales kind of played out for mm -hmm. me is like i can go here i know there's going to be a hundred houses going to auction i can maybe buy five of them to hit my numbers and, and move from there now the lesson and how it's a little bit different today there's not a whole lot of distress you know uh, you and i were talking about this uh, coming into like 2020 like i thought like this is it we're getting back to the distress there's going to be all kinds of foreclosures yeah, all those skills I learned a long time ago are gonna come in real handy and now and you know and, and layered in other commercial and development, but it was like this is gonna be the time. And then the government went and printed twenty trillion dollars and threw it out the window to everybody. Interest rates lowered down. And so understanding your competition, who you're trying to bid against mm -hmm. or compete against, to me does matter because they may be playing a different game than you. And I think that's, you know, a fantastic point. Cause like for us, we, for pay-per-click marketing to buy someone's house in Phoenix, you know, the east side of town is the more desirable, the west side of town, not as desirable. Um, and we made a conscious decision to just not bid on the east side of town. So mm -hmm. if it's Scottsdale, Tempe, Chandler, Gilbert, we're not even targeting it because open door and offer pad and all these other guys are just gonna eat our lunch. So we only target the west side of town, right? And so that was a conscious decision that we made. Um, I was actually at a conference, IMN, not too long ago. Hmm. Uh, and these hedge funds are on stage. They're talking about, you know, the way they price homes. And the way they price homes are not di are very different than how everyone else prices homes. Everyone else says, well, okay, what are the comps for the last 36 months? Based off these comps, here's what the house is worth. And they price it 100% on here's the rent. And we're seeking a 4% yield. And based off 4% yield, here's what we can pay. Which is sometimes 70, 80,000 higher than what the house is worth. But anyway, uh, to your point about understanding what your market's doing, what the competition's doing, so you can make your decisions based off, based off of that. Yeah, so if you were to go outbid them, <laughs> you, you could be in trouble. Like yeah. you would absolutely, and it depends on your game plan. So I talk about this in the book, is like establishing like your investment thesis and your criteria, and exactly to your point, as far as lessons learned, when when Invitation Home came into the market, they were absolutely buying things, everything on MLS. They they just offered every house on MLS. They were buying all of it. Mm -hmm. They were coming to auction and buying every house. Were you helping them buy an auction in Phoenix? I was not. Okay, because there was some jerk, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because I used to buy at auctions. Yeah, and um, 
there just came a day where we stopped buying at auctions because Invitation Homes was there and uh, you just could not compete against them. And I remember, like, I had listings that were going in the foreclosure, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, hey, you know, here's what it's worth. Here's what we can get. Here's the market value. And it would be, you know, I'm just pulling out the numbers out of the air here, but, like, you know, we had contracts for 140000 And we go to the banks, like, hey, this is the best offer. It's 140000 You know, like, you should accept this short sale offer. And I said, now nah, we'll just go to foreclosure. And then it would be at auction for like a hundred, and then invitation homes would come in and pay like a hundred and sixty, right? And it was like these numbers don't make sense. And also, if you're willing to pay one sixty, why were you not willing to pay one sixty when it was on the MLS? But and, and exactly that's what these that funds do. I was there, you know. You can see on the camera. I, I pulled all my hair out trying to figure out what the hell was Blackstone doing. So Jonathan Gray is one of the most brilliant real estate people that exist in the world, in my opinion. Uh, and I go, if he's the one behind this stuff, even though, and they had, I don't know, you know, less than desirable people at auction or a uh, hundred dollar parrots is what we called them because they all had earpieces in and all they would be doing is a, a hundred more, a hundred more, a hundred more. <laughs> and, you know, be like Jake's buying, Steve's buying a hundred more, a hundred more. They do their homework, you know? So as long as they were buying, you know, we'll go a hundred more than anyone else. And so when I started breaking that down is like, what the hell were they doing? And here's, here's the actual one that caused me like, it was like, I have to figure this out. So I went to auction. I bought a property. We fixed it up, spent 20 grand fixing it up turnkey getting ready to list it on on the market they said they were hungry for houses sell us anything what do you have and so we offered them and we said yeah we'll throw a little premium on what it might be on mls mm -hmm. said here's it and maybe it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars. so we said hey it's 265 you know no commissions fast closing everything like that and they're like great done accepted and they bought it well also during that time period, because when I was at auction, they kind of created this vacuum of, of volume. I, I was like, oh shit, like I may, might be out of buying. A, so I took the construction company, we became a vendor for them. Mm -hmm. So we also would do the, the remodels for them as well, just to kind of a hedge on the other side and find out what was happening. <laughs> Um, and just to make money. You're and so I got the, the same exact house. I had just sold to them for a premium as a work order to go fix up. And I mean, we, you know, it's hard to recognize addresses anymore. And as you get to so, such high levels of volume, like you just, I don't know what the address is. Uh, don't know. But I was like, man, that looks very familiar. And so I went and checked it out. It was a house that we'd already completely fixed up. They came in and they gave us a work order to do for another 20,000 fix up new carpet, you know, paint, new appliances. And I called them up and I was just like, I don't understand this. This is a house has brand new carpet. I know because I just put it in. It has appliances. It has is freshly painted. Why are we doing carpet paint, you know, new appliances? And they said, oh, we just want it to our standard of our, our paint color, our appliances and our carpet. So take it out. And I was just like. This makes no sense to me. But you figured it out. So, and I peeled back the layers of the onion and really what they were doing at the time. And so this is 2012, 2013. They had benchmarked a price of the pe previous peak price. So if they said a market was $500,000 was uh, the previous peak high and that they were paying, were willing to pay up to 75% of that previous peak value 
all in. So they said, okay, so call that $300,000. If the house was $200,000 and you needed to fix it up, you and I went to auction and said, it's only worth 200 because that's what the comps are. And they, you know, paid 220 for it. And then they fixed it up and we were just like, what is going on? Like you just, you're 50,000 more than it's worth into this house. Yeah. But what they're saying is this is going to shoulder off of those previous peak prices. Mm -hmm. And then the portfolio is, you know, going to grow in value. They made a $10 billion bet. They were $10 billion correct. So they were macro correct versus me saving five cents a linear foot on baseboard and i was micro correct on being able to fix up things more efficiently but it's better to understand the macro big pictures of what's going on and their plan was not to flip it in three months or 90 days or you know uh two years even they're looking at a five-year 10-year plus hold and so because of their investment thesis they could pay a significant premium over and just like your example of they're paying a four percent on yield uh, on a return then it's just like if you went and outbid them you would be screwed and you could lose a lot of money. What's a good deal for me? Maybe a terrible deal for you. Right. What's a good deal for you? Maybe a terrible deal for me and vice versa. And so in understanding what the game you're going to play, you have certain numbers that you need to abide by and the emotions of auctions, the losing out on a lot of them. I've seen so many people get caught up in that and then lose money. And I've done it too. When you have a a certain amount of money you have to place in a certain timeline. Yeah. And then you're like, we just got to get some houses. We got to go get some deals and you stretch and then you get. You overpay and then overpay. things go south. You're in a bad spot. Uh, it's interesting. Do you know, uh, you're familiar with Offerpad, I assume. Yep. Yeah. So uh, Brian Bear, who founded it, uh, I remember I was having lunch with him and I was like, what was, what was the mindset? Like, what are you guys doing here? And they're like, oh, we're just making the market. It's like, what? <laughs> We're going to make our market. And they did. Yeah. They 100% made their market. Uh, the other thing, too, is, um, you know, uh, one of the uh, hedge funds out here, you know, they're buying a ton of crazy amount of houses out here, right? I mean, between Tricon, Colony, American Homes, all these other ones. Um, we, are dealt, we dealt with the same exact thing very recently, what you just mentioned. Had a property that was a flip, a well-done flip, sold to a hedge fund. And the next day, they went and redid the whole house. And we're like, what are you guys doing? Like, this house is clearly not just rent ready. This is like a family to own ready. And basically for them, they want to have just one or two, three paint colors. That's it. So that if anything happens, they've got that bucket of paint ready. Same thing with the carpet. And just everything has to be done to skew they've got margins of scale so yeah it costs them 20 grand to remodel this but they'll save that and more because they have just these three paint colors in all their trucks yeah different problems or yeah. different they're solving different problems than we are absolutely yeah so it, it was to me was unlocking and i actually then went back to school i went back and got a, a master's degree in international real estate and uh, kind of finance and part of this was i am doing this forever and it's like learning a new language, learning private equity, learning the way they talk, how they model things. Uh, portfolio management is a totally different uh, ball game. How you balance out risk, how you you know hedge against those. And so that to me was was very very informative to go do that and get educated in that in that place. 
I don't think necessarily like my kids may not go to college. Uh, I think it's losing value every day. I think technology and the access to education is becoming uh, pulled forward and you can tap into the things that you really want to learn. If mm -hmm. you want to learn about underwater basket weaving, I bet you there's a YouTube uh, channel on it. And, or, or a $3,000 course. Or a $3,000 course, you know, <laughs> you could pay somebody to teach you that. Uh, so I have uh, learned a lot from education and it was because I really, really specifically wanted to learn that. So you help, again, thousands of houses across the country. You, you said it was, it was, um, you said it was Harris Bay. Harris Bay. And is that still what you operate under or will you continue to work with these other hedge funds as well? Uh, I, or funds? Harris Bay is, is, is the, the main flag that I f fly. Um, we've done some deals with some other people. There's kind of some affiliate entities, but Harris Bay is wh what I do. And 2015, uh, you know, I also started investing in commercial real estate. Uh, I started investing in Austin, uh, Texas, you know, really, you know, I'd used a, a big data aggregation of where the uh, markets were going to be going up. It's, it's, uh, you can be Michael Phelps, Olympic swimmer, but if you're swimming against the tide, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And so what I was trying to do is determine is where these, the momentum of the market would take you and even you just kind of doggy paddle and it kind of takes you with it. And so, uh, I told you a little bit earlier is just getting in front of the institutional capital has been the key to success for me. Uh, I believe. How did you get in front of the institutional capital? Well, so part of it is that they have, again, also some leading indicators of things that they do. CBRE is the eyes and ears of institutional capital. And for those that, you know, don't understand institu institutional capital, like what is that? Well, hang on before you do, you do that. CBRE, what is that? CBRE. I mean, for people that don't know. Don't know. Uh, it used to be um, Coldware Banker. Then they merged with Richard Ellis. Mm -hmm. And so these are two of the largest commercial real estate brokers in the world. They merged together and then cobbled their names together. And so now it's CB Richard Ellis or, you know, CBRE. Yeah. And so Which is the whole potential antitrust thing. But whatever. Anyway, continue. Sure. So they are the number one largest commercial real estate firm in the world. Mm -hmm. And they... Um, because of that being the largest, all these REITs, institutional capital, sovereign wealth funds, based on their decisions on what they're saying, their market study is great. You know, they again, spend a lot of world money class, yeah. you know, and, and so institutional capital pull that back. That is, these are like stocks. These are the REIT funds. These are when... Amazon needs to place some money, they invest it through some of these vehicles and they might give billions of dollars like uh, CalPERS, uh, California uh, Public Employees, you know, mm -hmm. retirement system. They give, all right, you know, a hundred billion dollars to Blackstone in a investment thesis and then Blackstone does the actual work and so Blackstone becomes institutional capital. It's funding from pensions, it's from funding from teachers, uh, you know, retirement accounts. And they have a level of sophistication that they need to follow. So you saying like they had a certain skew, they had a certain like, here's our three paint colors, mm. totally makes sense because they said, we found that these are the three colors that most people 
like or don't find offensive and they're the cheapest three paint colors that exist because of these pigment numbers mm -hmm. and private equity kind of really owns the world because of the way that they systematize that and so this is a systematized way of investing capital at a very very large scale they and what you'll discover as most people do discover is that you start flipping houses you need to get bigger deals uh commercial you know, flipping a house, a $100,000 house is almost the same amount of work as flipping a $10 million commercial building. Yeah. The same stuff that you do goes into that. It's hiring. It's the managing. It's the same system. The things that, that you place. have to do are pretty much the same. The scope of work is different, but the things that you have to do are pretty much the same. Absolutely. Uh, going back a, a moment ago, you're talking about how to find or get access to institutional capital. Well, how, how would someone that's listening right now get in front of institutional capital? It's tough. It has to really fit. And, and part of this comes into is institutional capital typically doesn't, you know, do small deals. Uh, they have, you know, huge mandates. Like we have to place a billion dollars. We need to deploy it. In the next three months. And so they have a very, very narrow window of what they're, they're, you know, focusing on. And they may, and, and really the time buying single family houses was the first time that any private equity, big hedge fund, whatever it was, did that at that low of a level. Primarily it was all focused on office buildings that they could go do $100 million office buildings or $50 million apartments. Yeah. Giant place. Because it's the same amount of work to them, but when it makes 10% uh, return on a $50 million deal, like, wow, you make 5 million bucks, you make 10% on a $100,000 house, you make 10 grand, and it's the same amount of work. Yeah. So they're just like, we're not going to mess with that. So most, and still even today, is they don't do small deals. So the one to $20 million deal size on commercial real estate is mostly- it's not interesting to them. Not interesting, mom paused. So let me ask you this, because we talked about a moment ago, they have to deploy this capital. Do you think this will happen with Zillow? Did you think that they, was it hubris or was it because they had to deploy capital that caused them to buy all these properties at stupid prices? Uh, my personal opinion is I think they drank their own Kool-Aid. They thought their regression uh, analysis, their Zestimate mm -hmm. was smarter than it actually is. Uh, and then they started deploying capital based on the premise that they're going to be able to uh, determine what the future value of this real estate is. Mm -hmm. They had institutional, the, the Blackstones of the world trying to throw money in and help them fund it. But they had this flawed initial premise that caused them to overpay for houses I know some of the people that were the buyers for them. They uh, used to be like spinoffs of the the invitation homes mm -hmm. people, the people that aggregated the stuff. They didn't know what they were doing. And so they were using as like, if you use Zestimate, every real estate agent or real estate person that's involved in the world can, goes and looks at the Zestimate and knows that it can be $50,000 off in either direction. Yeah, it's plus or minus 20%, no big deal. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> uh, maybe it's right, maybe it's not. Yeah. Well, when you use that as your baseline investment vehicle, you're going to do stupid things. Yeah. And so that's where I, I believe they came in. They thought the markets were going to go up faster. They were using a, a, a limited data set of uh, 
you know, COVID spikes, you know, fl you know, a, a flight to suburbia, and they just thought it was going to take off like a rocket ship. So they're like us in 2007 where the party was never going to end. Yes, a little bit. Well, and I would say they were a little bit more speculative because they weren't even looking at um, – because, you know, they were just paying over prices. Like, they weren't even buying it for what it was worth. Oftentimes, they were coming in and offering people $50,000 more than any other comparable who was. And you're just like, I don't know how you compete against this. And so yeah. the wholesalers and guys like that, and when you'd be like, oh, Zillow's going to give me, you know, $450,000. And you're like. No, it's not. No, they're not. <laughs> and then they do. They do. And they're just like. <laughs> I don't know how that makes sense, but okay. Um, so another question, because you're in this world, right, of institutional capital. Uh, it seems like BlackRock is behind every single fund. Like they're like they're at the craft table and they got their chips on every every single spot. What are your thoughts on that? I would say um, that's not completely inaccurate. You know, you you have to understand that. So Blackstone and BlackRock used to be the same company. Mm -hmm. So they split off. Oh, is that the reason why they sound so similar? Yeah. Okay. So they used to be the same company. And so Blackstone, Steve Schwartzman, found a really amazing, talented guy, and he staked him as far as, it, you know, and then they split off. And because he was like, hey, I want to do this. Steve Schwartzman was like, oh, my gosh, I wish I wouldn't have split that off. And so they took from Blackstone to BlackRock. BlackRock mm -hmm. is a... Uh, a spinoff of that they now have funded because of some of their e, uh, ETFs and other things gone into the trillions of dollars of assets under management. Mm -hmm. So they need to deploy money in every single category of every asset type. And, you know, so now that they have that, they can fund essentially every strategy that exists. And if you just bet on everything, you ultimately win. You, you can't go wrong. You know, what's your risk is like, okay, you know, the uh, overall, f you know, organized society of s the system uh, collapses, then we're screwed. But like, how do you hedge against that? You know? Well, the government will bail them out. Um, so the other question I have is, as you said, you've studied history. Yes. So has there ever been a time like 2020 where there was this nationwide, not nationwide, worldwide, uh, Fear. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the best way to describe it, but everyone's like running for the hills and then real estate took off. Um, I think that's a little bit more detailed than in a lot of the, the study studies, market cycles that I've um, dove into. There are a lot of similarities to the roaring 20s, you know, that there was such an exuberance uh, for life because it was just after World War One. Everybody thought they were going to die. You know, the world is going to end. This is the war that's going to end all wars. We're all going to die. Everybody has to do their part. You know, go make, you know, planes. You know, millions of people died in trenches in, in Europe. And what happened is then that stopped. And then when the war was over, you had everybody that just went crazy because they were just like, we didn't die. We didn't die. Like, oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Like, and then what happened is the stock market, you know, some other things, the, the national banks uh, started rolling up, easy access to capital, and it was the roaring 20s. Wow, what an amazing 
time to be alive. Great Gatsby and flappers and extravagance all across the board that then led to an overinflation of the market and the Great Depression. And so I was like, you know, it it depends because what we have now is we have a new epic a new era of of society is there's this is the information age from the industrial age to the information age and technology has the ability to slow down or speed up some of these you know underlying problems yeah and so where we could have the a greater roaring 20s and an even greater depression that is a very likely scenario if you play these things out but again, technology could uh, exasperate that, can make it happen faster, or they can elongate it and take longer and kick the can down the road. Which feels the like government printing $20 trillion definitely kicks that can down the road. I think there was going to be uh, a lot more distress. The market should have corrected, but it didn't. And so now what that does is, you know, don't fight the Fed. The Fed is printing the money to go try to short the market or do something like that. You could uh, end up being on the wrong side of that like Ray Dalio did. Yeah. Uh, Okay. so up until this point, is this the story up to 2015, 16? Is that the 200 million dollars or is there more to get to the 200 million dollars? So we've done couple hundred million dollars worth of real estate uh, into that really we started getting into more development uh buying stuff in 2015 2016 land getting into adaptive reuse heavy um, value add converting something from an office to apartments doing taking a warehouse to lofts you know assembling and so i have now about 20 acres of, of land in, in downtown San Antonio. Uh, we're just topping out an apartment uh, complex in East Austin uh, where the data led me to Texas because uh, when in 2015, I was kind of looking, where, where am I going to invest? And there was 10 markets that I came up on this criteria and Texas had four of the, the 10. And I was like, wow, I can actually drive between Austin and San Antonio. I, I guess I should start investing in mm-hmm. those markets. One of the other things that I mentioned earlier, technology has unlocked the ability to remotely invest that did not happen before. You would have no access to information. You wouldn't be able to do comps online. It was only when you are local to a market. And so since the internet and the unlocking of technology was you could now do valuations from anywhere and invest in anywhere in the country that you understood the kind of rule of law of how things played out. So when I started investing, I wish I would have bought a lot more in Austin in 2015. (laughs) Uh, The last several years, I don't know how you make a deal pencil in that market unless you're somebody that can tweet out a dog face and have your uh, cryptocurrency go up five, eight, ten billion dollars in an afternoon. I don't know how you make sense of that market. It's again, there's such a frenzy, so much capital pulling in there. It's just like I have a hard time making sense of that. What's led to these other markets like San Antonio land prices are one tenth. They are in Austin. Rents are maybe only 15 to 20% less in some areas. So when you have that, that discount is you still have intrinsic under market 
numbers. And when I say intrinsic is say, say, you know, uh, apartment building is worth $10 million. When you can go build it or buy the dirt and build the building and do these things. And it's all in for 8 million, you know, you have a little intrinsic kind of value added proposition to that, or you buy that particular building for 5 million and go spend 2 million fixing it up. Everything kind of has, and for me in the way I invest is I always have to be investing under that intrinsic value of the asset and from that market value. And again, it's just my way. And, and part of it is that reactionary time to seeing the subprime meltdown and mm -hmm. being sobbing on a street corner in, in Tucson, dear Lord, can I be worth no money? I think that's very real to me. And so I have that in the back of my head, always saying like, is the market overinflated? Or are you going to lose your ass? And to me, that's how I can hedge against that is I already buy at a discount. Why I wrote the book about investing in distressed real estate is it gives you a larger margin of safety. Warren Buffett talks about this mm -hmm. and, and you know, it talks about this margin of safety early and in, in first time investors you need more safety because you're going to go screw things up. If you buy at top price and peak values on these other things, and then you screw up, like you just have to thread a needle and have everything work out perfect. And it's not, and I'm going to tell you, it's not going to work out perfect. I have yet, yet to have a deal that just worked out perfect. Yeah. Uh, and so why I believe distrust or opportunistic kind of investing as a better place for people to get started is because it builds out all those fundamentals, understanding of how this works. And then you're also buying it at a discount. So then you have more opportunity to make a mistake and still make a profit. So with these deals, you know, the, the properties in San, San Antonio and Austin, are these bigger flips? Is, is, is that the play? Is you're buying with an intent intention to flip these or are these buy and holes or like what what is the exit on, on yeah those? so we've adapted our business model so the the opportunistic flipping you know with that we've wound that down we're doing development and then we have assets that are just established for for cash flow and so call it three legs of a stool is to support the growth of our kind of private equity um company was having all of these different legs and so we're making fees where some of them are long-term. So we have a couple opportunity zone deals. Opportunity zones are a very favorable tax environment. So we're building a hotel, ground up, and then we're gonna hold for 11 years. We do historic tax credit deals. So we bought a, a historic building, converting that to apartments. We're gonna own that for 10 years. We're doing some ground up development, brand new, you know, amazing apartments. And those are going to be some some just merchant built, some will be merchant build, meaning we're just going to build it to sell it. Some of it will be long term kind of cash flow. And then we have assets that we own for cash flow, office buildings, some apartments, some other things like that. So what happens is we have a layering of um, a hedge, you know, thing. So we have cash flow that's coming in from properties, we have some development stuff that's happening. And then when there is distress, we can focus our efforts over in there. But right now there's no distress. So There's I was no like, I don't, on. I don't know how you go find those, but what's happened here kind of post COVID, I thought there was going to be a lot of hotels, a lot of retail, a lot of things that, that I mean, had all, to, all, all the statistics indicated all, all the hospitality should have been at the distress sale. So they're starting to come on market. They got PPP money. They got some of these other government handouts. 
but now they're having to stand on their own. They're going to have to re uh, invest into their property, a PIP, a property improvement plan. They're going to have to incorporate these. And there's some owners now that were like, well, we didn't die, but we'll sell now. We don't want to keep fighting the fight. And so there are opportunities that are starting to come on the market. It's not the deep discount distress foreclosure, but it is starting to happen in you know segments of that. There's some retail strip centers that are, you know, Amazon kicked them in the teeth. They're not doing well. They have a wrong or bad mix of tenants. They have too much, uh, a crappy parking lot, a roof that's leaking. And they're just like, I'm ready to get, yeah. be out of this. Um, so going to the questions here um, on Instagram, Josue wants to know, how old were you when you're going through all this? And uh, the question was asked when you were talking about uh, building across the country. We're helping all these different states, right? flip houses how yeah old were you? so all that? let's see i was um in my 30s i would say kind of mid 30s let's see i'm 43 now five six years ago so you know 35 36 when i started really scaling across the nation um i was a millionaire before 30 i started i bought my first property i think at 23 uh it's millionaire before 30 Actually, at my 30th birthday, I was like, you know, uh, watching everything eviscerate. So it was like, this really sucks. Uh, you know, again, being a millionaire and then maintaining that millionaire status are two different things and skill set I had not yet learned. Uh, but you can't learn that second skill set until you hit that first one. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, I, I uh, on Facebook, how, how do you do your valuation? So I guess going back to your commercial properties, you're talking about buying these in Austin and, and, and San Antonio. How are you? evaluating evaluating those properties yeah so that's it's it's a process you know so you know a lot of people also have to understand that i have been doing in solely professional investment for close to 20 years now the only thing that i do is you know invest into real estate or build it or fix it up so in that 20 years and going in going, getting a master's degree in international real estate and finance, going to conferences, reading books, watching other people model stuff, I've been able to have a much wider array of values that I understand. Something that you can pull from. Yeah, and so I wouldn't expect, and somebody especially getting into this, is it's better to, to niche down on one particular thing that is of interest to you uh, now we're looking at more like market specifics. For me, I'm looking at San Antonio. I'm looking for a good deal in San Antonio. That can be a hotel. That can be an office building. It can be an apartment. But we have the, the the depth of knowledge to evaluate each one of those. If someone is starting out, I would say find out what one thing that you kind of really want to focus in and get good at understanding. There's lots of courses that exist out there on doing due diligence, doing valuations. But with commercial deals, you also have to understand there's a whole new layer of uh, risk to it. In residential real estate, there's all kinds of disclosures. Everybody, every, you know, you've signed them disclosures like a, a packet of disclosures this big that you're, you know, can lose money and do all these other things. None of that exists in commercial real estate. Yeah. If you buy contaminated property because there used to be a uh, laundromat there. And laundromats use uh, a lot of chemicals. 
and or dry cleaners use a lot of chemicals to clean clothes and that can be contaminated and you may have uh, you could have got the property for free but you have hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of cleanup that you have to do on that property mm -hmm. to even get any kind of value to it but now you're married to that property until you get rid of it and so that's one of the things that commercial has more risk more reward but understanding what you're diving into. The fact that I come from a construction background, I can evaluate oftentimes these heavy value ads. I'm a little bit better at those than mm -hmm. other people. Uh, on YouTube, Jeremy wants to know, how did you approach these partners and what was your proposal to a partnership? So um, I'm not sure which part he was referencing to. I'll kind of give you uh, a few different versions of it. The first kind of partner was, uh, they had the money, they needed somebody to go do it. I was willing to do anything. So I just said yes. And we figured it out later. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as, as you know, partnership with some of these uh, institutional uh, people was, I just added value to them first. And then as I added value or sold them valuable portfolios or helped them out in uh, difficult properties, they then that, you know, reciprocated that, hey, can you help us? Or, hey, would you run, you know, acquisitions? Would you do one of these other things? Uh, how I then ultimately, you know, I started when I started my own company is I didn't have the institutional backing. So I partnered with a wealth manager. He had high net worth individuals, some small family offices that wanted to be into real estate space. I had the in the trenches technical skill sets on how to do that. So then he brought some of that capital and where we were able to kind of grow this uh, nationwide. So finding where you can add value to someone else, if you're solving other people's problems, then that's how you can create the best partnership or structure of, of a deal. Uh, you know, identifying what you do or what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And there's value in this. I mean, even from people that are wholesalers, going and finding and door knocking doors, chasing down leads, doing, you know, the kind of the, you know, used to be called bird dogging, you know, but, uh, you know, when you would bird dog a deal and hand it off to an investor, if you're giving people awesome deals, they're like, you're on to something. How can I help support you? I think you recently or you know put out there if you want Ferrari, uh, you know assignment yeah. fees, you need to be given Ferrari deals. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that you are going to get opportunities directly proportional to the value you add to other people. Yeah, and I think just one of the things that I, I, I've learned right is when I was much younger, I would say like how how can you help me like, or like you know let's say you're the asset manager. Hey, I want your listings. How how can I get listings, right? What can I do to get listings? And that is not a very useful conversation versus, hey, Jake, where do you need help? What can I do for you? That's not related to listings, but just maybe be a second set of eyes, can be a resource. Whatever you need at any time, let me know. And if I keep telling you I'm willing to do things for you to help you, eventually you can say, you know what, Steve? I've got this problem. I've got this property. Can you help me with this one, right? But yeah, lead with value. And everyone says lead with value, but I don't think they know how to lead with value. I think proximity allows people to help identify that. If you're not a psychopath, just being around other people, you can see where they have challenges. 
So getting around those other people, exactly as you said, now people come up like, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And I'd be like, that's more work for me to try to figure out what mm-hmm. I need or how, you, how, what are your skill sets? And we we're actually discussing this is that I'm looking for like world-class talent in certain segments of things. And until I can see that somebody is a world-class talent, like it takes me more effort to go, go try to teach someone or train them how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so it is just by being in proximity, you can start observing and be like, ah, oh, Steve's missing this or Steve is that. And it may even come up in conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a book by Keith Ferrazzi that says never eat alone. I may be, you know, the title may be off a little bit on that, but he's like connecting other people. You may say, man, I really want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine. That's, that's my big thing that I really wish I could do. And maybe you've written out a vivid vision. You've read Cameron Harrell's vivid vision and you posted it up on your wall and somebody sees that and they're like, oh my gosh, my sister is the one that does the Forbes magazine, you know, uh, photography, and I can help put you in connection with that thing that you really, really want. Mm -hmm. You only know that through that proximity and understanding and having conversation pieces, it may not necessarily be, but if I was just to come up and say, how can I help you? There's no way you ever lead with, gee, I really want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine. Yeah. I mean, the, I have to, I have to sit down and think about it. And like, and again, it's, this is more work. So like the question of how can it be a value is the right idea, but it's not enough. Correct. Yeah. Um, and then on YouTube, uh, Jer Sim, what are your thoughts about creating a fund and listing it on a real property index? Like N C R E I F. You familiar with that? No. Okay. Then, Probably not a whole lot of thoughts. All right, so no. Well, explain what it is real quick. Um, yeah, all right. So uh, I'm guessing this is Jeremy. Uh, so please uh, type it out in a different way to, to elaborate. Uh, Jose, what's this proper, what systems and processes do you have in place now to maintain millionaire status? So how do you make sure that you preserve your wealth this time? So part of the things I was discussing as far as having those different kind of buckets, long-term cash flow development, you know, opportunistic real estate, having different buckets, it's not completely dependent. This is also an example I've learned from like home builders, like home builders kind of have this feast or famine, you know, right yes, now feast, like, oh my gosh. And then the, the market collapse and then all of them go bankrupt. You know, they're flying around in jets and now they have, you know, hundred million dollar bankruptcies. So when I was looking at that, and again, just observing and being around some of those was how do you have other asset that, and, and really to the portfolio management that I kind of learned from the institutional capital is like, oh, you need other things that maybe aren't as sexy or as pretty or, you know, our high rise office buildings or, you know, a, a hotel building on the Riverwalk in San Antonio, but it pays the bills and brings in. And so you can have something that consistently delivers. I know there's real estate agents that have a team that maybe is creating a, a you know, a W2 or not really W2, but a system that has some cash flow and then they can start doing some flips and then they have some rental properties by diversifying and again diversifying is a cliche way of you know i'm going to protect my wealth it can still be laser focused within real estate if you want to just do real estate you can have a rental property and be building something a spec custom home 
and you know Scottsdale. Yeah. Different risk profile, both to real estate, but then if the market tanks, that custom home you may be you know underwater on, but that cash flowing apartment in Tempe probably is gonna go okay. And so having some diversity within that holdings, I now have also been investing into uh, not other people as an LP, a limited partner into other deals, not necessarily real estate because it's hard for me to get over some of the fees or some of the other people's. And I'm like, I don't really have control of that, but investing into other people's companies, mm -hmm. investing into them. So when those spin off, say you put a, you know, a couple hundred thousand or half a million dollars a year into other people's investments and they're all projected to make 20% each. If you've done a halfway decent job sourcing the, those sponsors and that, that general partner, you know, eight times or 80% of the time, four out of five should give you that 20% return. And if that other one kind of dips and now you've created layers of preserving your wealth, yeah. understanding insurance. Uh, for me, it was also every single aspect of my life has had a remaking. I, I joined a mastermind group. I actually heard Lewis Howes talk about joining a mastermind years ago on a podcast. And I was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and I like, what is a mastermind? Yeah. Like I Googled that and uh, I ended up uh, connecting up with uh, GoBundance. So uh, a lot of friends in GoBundance, you know, Brandon Turner with Bigger Pockets, mm -hmm. uh, Aaron Amuchastegui is a, a friend of mine. He actually was the one that introduced me. And it's like, you need to join this group. And I was like, I don't know what it is. And I looked at it and it was like every single aspect, like how is your relationship with your wife? Or your partner, you know, how is your relationship with your kids? How's your relationship with your parents? Are you giving back to society? You've made money. Money is probably the actual least valuable thing that exists. You know, it, it is a, the, the gasoline that allows, or the, the fuel that allows the system to work. Mm -hmm. We can make more money. We can't make more time. Yeah. You can't replace necessarily, and I guess you could replace your family, but I go at a <laughs> terrible, terrible loss. And so when you look at this is uh, all these other categories to me are way, way more important. I'd rather be a, a whole life millionaire, have my health. You know, I've you know lost more than, you know, a hundred pounds and I've, I've really been focusing on uh, my longevity and, you know, doing blood work, having things checked up on is like, you know, are you doing eating the right habits? I've worked out. Actually, I just checked this yesterday, 786 days in a row, That's every really day for 786 days being stubborn. My mom was like, you're stubborn. You get it from your dad. My mom, my, uh, my dad was like, you're stubborn. You get it from your mom. So and I was like, says. maybe I got double dose of that. Mm -hmm. And so this extra level of stubbornness, and it was like, how do you use the stubbornness, your own who you are for your own benefit? So then I was just like, I don't, I'm not flexible on my working out. I work out every day. That's my stubbornness mm -hmm. is playing into something that's going to net benefit me and my family every single day. So when I have a 5 a.m. flight, I'll get up at 3 a.m. to work out. Yeah. I'll do this and I do this every single day, rain, you know, COVID ankle screwed up. doesn't matter. I work out every day using that, that level of who I am. I think that also establishes some of that takes inner work, 
interpersonal d- discovery as like finding out like who are you mm-hmm. and then if you can do and layer your habits onto who you already naturally are it gets a lot easier to stay with them and build systems around that and i think just on your point earlier one thing we see people in this industry i've seen this on the residential real estate side and i've seen this on the wholesale real estate side not enough people are buying rental properties i think if at bare minimum if you see real estate every day you should be buying some of it oh my gosh how many how how many gazillions of dollars i'd be worth if i'd held all, a lot of these houses that i flipped yeah. i just look at that and actually i have to I, I have to just not look at the numbers because i was like it'd be absurd well, how much you talk about i mean my 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 level is definitely not your level uh, but you know you talk about austin you know uh, we bought a property in austin i want to say around 2006 okay. 2007 and then we sold it in around 2010, 2011, because we had a lot of losses in Phoenix. But the win in that Austin property was able to cover our losses in Phoenix and we could just be done. Yep. I really wish I held on to that Austin property. It's probably worth like a million dollars. I don't know what it is, but man, it, 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 it's rough. Let's get out that Zestimate. I'm sure that's <laughs> super highly accurate. Well, what I heard in Austin is you can take the Zestimate and just add 100K to it. Um, so let's see what else was there. So Zora, how much longer do you think this bull run will last for residential real estate? This is a, this is a, a, a was it magic ball? Yeah. My, my magic crystal ball. Magic eight ball yeah. yeah. Magic eight ball. Uh, it's a while, uh, fundamentally speaking. So, uh, there are four and a half, maybe 5 million residential units short mm-hmm. for the nation. So when you actually bake down to population growth birth rate immigration other things that you know in the country we need 1 million to 1.5 million new residential units every single year so since 2007 we have not delivered a million residential units at any one of those years since and so 2005 2006 the, there was 1.5 million uh, both of those years was peak activity for, for home building, residential apartments as well. So 1.5. There was an oversupply in the market. And Phoenix was very much an oversupply of that uh, the market. So we took several years in which we were working through, uh, as a nation, that oversupply of inventory. And if you look at it, 2012 was the time in which we had equilibrium. The first time that we had the same amount of units as the same amount of people that wanted to live in or needed to live in since that time period. And they built half a million homes and then 600 and then 700, you know, and then 600,000. And as in each year since 2012, they've been undersupplying the market. And so that amount of homes or residential units has been growing of more demand than there is supply. And this is just fundamentals like econ 101 of supply and demand. And so if you also look at home prices, some 2012 have only gone up, 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 Mm -hmm. up, up, up against to that. And it comes down to the fundamentals of undersupplying the market and it's going up. It's had a couple of little, you know, plateaus in there. What happened during COVID was they just printed a bunch of money and then they lowered interest rates. 
the government that printed all this money pays interest based on the interest rates that they put out to the market. So they are they back themselves into a corner that they're going to have to keep and artificially keep the interest rates low for an elongated period of time. If you look at Japan, Japan has done something like this where they had decades and decades of very, very low interest rate. So some people think that, oh, as inflation starts kicking up, they're going to have to raise rates. But that means they have to pay the the bills based on what they just printed and so they're kind of stuck they can't raise rates that much they don't have any more tools at their disposal exactly and so when we now have five million residential units short and that's not evenly dispersed across the country there's some markets in ohio and you know that shouldn't they have they don't have enough people to fill some of those markets to fill the houses that exist in there. It's mostly concentrated of, of lack of supply in, in the southern United States. California, um, Washington, Oregon, the West Coast is doing a fantastic job of driving people out of those markets and they're flooding into Boise and Salt Lake and Phoenix and Texas. And so in the, the Northeast is doing a fantastic job of driving people down to the Carolinas and to Tennessee and Florida, Florida and yep. Texas. And so you have this conversion happening. And so those 5 million residential units are in, you know, are needed in the Southern United States. So as long as that exists, as long as the low interest rate exists and, and really interest rate is, is, not the biggest leading factor for someone buying a house. Just the fact that a mortgage will lend on it and will tell someone they can buy a house, they'll buy it. That's it, it doesn't, they don't care. They don't actually care what the mortgage payment is. They just, the mortgage bank says, we'll give you a loan. They'll buy the house. And so as long as that exists, this run can happen and it could be two, three, four. I don't know how long it, it continues on. And that is going to, um, I think, bigger macro things would have to happen to cause a collapse of, of that overall. Uh, pricing is a challenge. Building houses, you can't build a house for almost less than half a million dollars. What, going back to uh, your situation, uh, what is your biggest struggle right now? Construction. Yeah, I mean, supply chain, you know, uh, subs that, you know, maybe we have the supplies, supply chains, and, and, and initially it was not necessarily supply chains, is there was a disruption in the logistics. So the lumber mills, the the, the trees were the, the same price, but they'd shut down all the lumber mills, and now there's a backlog. They actually thought that, you know, people weren't... People were going to stop building. Yeah, and COVID. then it was, they picked up, and it doubled their efforts, and so they're like, oh, crap. The fact that the government was giving out free money, $40,000 to anybody to stay at home, and said, do you want to go make $10 an hour working in a, a lumber mill, a very dangerous, hardworking, labor-intensive job for you know $30,000, or do you want to stay at home and drink beer and play Xbox and make $40,000 a year? So there was a lot of people who was like... I don't know, I'm not a math major, but I like 40,000 and not working versus doing that. So a lot of those things have been starting to get unclogged. Mm -hmm. the, the material, you know, was likely available or, or maybe you can actually get it. But then subcontractors are so busy 
that they're giving you ridiculous numbers and terms and terms. And so I'm looking at some of these things and, and obviously, you know, we just discussed, I started out as a estimator in commercial construction. So I'd break down and say, we need, you know, uh, 500 pieces of plywood. And what's the supply price on that right now? It's, oh, it's $30 a sheet. So it's $15,000. And why are they charging us a hundred thousand dollars? And I'm like, I, this doesn't make sense to me. And so I call them up and I'm like, Hey, Bob, what the hell? And, uh, <laughs> you know, like I'm looking at the price right now and he was like, well, I'm marking the material up a hundred percent. And not only that, my labor, I'm charging you this. And you'd be like, well, I don't like that. And they're like, well, I, I don't want to work for you. Yeah. And you're like, cause they can get paid that. And then what else do you do? My brother works for a home builder. He said they're, they're fence guy costing more and more and is slower and slower. And they called him into the office exactly that and said, how dare you? Like you need to, you know, man up and go faster and be cheaper. And he just literally stood there and was that, I don't want to work for you guys. I'm out. And he just walked out of their office and took off. And then they're like, uh, uh, uh. Never mind. I mean, good job. Keep it up. <laughs> you know, and so it's just like we're in such a weird time in the world that it's just like it has no basis of fundamentals. And so that's very, very challenging when you're building stuff. We have no leverage. What is what is your superpower? Persistency. So my wife was like, uh, you just kept showing up. You know, I, I was like, I knew she was the one very early on. And uh, I told her, we're getting married after maybe like the third date. And she's like, you're crazy. And I was like, that is firmly established. I know <laughs> that I am crazy. Uh, I actually, so I have a theory. Everyone yeah. is crazy once you get to know them. Your crazy just happens to click with other people's crazy. And so then it's like, you know, sometimes it was like, that person's crazy. I would never date them. What happens is you're both crazy. You just find somebody that has a compatible crazy with you. And you're like, yeah, let's yeah. get married and have kids. It's a little, a little, a little uh, bit in sync on, on that. Yes. So uh, I just kept showing up. I, I play a lot of times the long game. Uh, a lot of the deals that I've found, some of my best deals have been being persistent, following up with them for years. Hey. How are you doing? Are you ever interested in selling? I'm interested in buying, talking to them, building a rapport, building a relationship. So one of the, the buildings that I am buying, you know, it took five years before I actually bought it, you know, and then when they did come around and they were willing to sell the fact that I would still, you know, you know, chip away at that. And I wouldn't say that I was hard selling them. It was building a relationship, just letting them know that I was still interested. Yeah. And so I have found that that persistency of presence and consistently showing up all the time, you know, has been, you know, 90% of, of the success that I've had in life. Uh, so um, I'm guessing this is Jeremy, uh, could be Jerry, uh, follow up question um, is what are your biggest milestones that you're eyeing over the next three years? Opening of the hotel that we're building, we're building a, a luxury boutique hotel on the Riverwalk. Uh, it should be within three years be open. It's summer of 24 is where we're queued up right now. 
maybe subs go crazy and try to extort us out of millions more in, in costs. But uh, we're on pace to do that, and we have a, a good GC working with us. Uh, so I think that is, is very likely. I really love the hospitality space. It, it was um, a, a longer time period. It's, it's a, a recent kind of uh, investment the last several years that I've, I've started getting into that space. It is where it, the unique experiences, and I think every one of us is um, seeking more connection. We're more, we have more Instagram followers and Facebook people than ever before, but society as a whole is feeling lonelier and more disconnected from people than ever. Mm -hmm. And for me, I've been doing a lot of studying of how cities were built. And so the Spanish colonial architecture was done around like a plaza and a connection and people just hang out and you go down to Havana in Cuba, you go to you know, Cartagena, you go to, you know, Madrid, you go to all these countries that had this kind of Spanish colonial roots. And it was about connecting people. And what I, I believe is that people from a human condition, we need connection, we're tribal by nature, and we need to connect with other people. Hospitality allows you the budget and the wherewithal to layer in those experiences with cohesive design and, and collectively and again this is a little bit in theory because we're we haven't delivered it yet but it's been some of the best things that i've ever you know um seen have been when they've done that if it's staying at a small little hotel in france or something it is very you know memorable for me and so when I layer that in, that's to me that milestone of completing that. I'm going to be doing more hotels. We actually have, you know, several other LOIs out on some opportunities in that mm -hmm. space. I think you can disconnect the old brand flagged hotels and, and limited service uh, or select service hotels that are getting their profits eroded and eaten away from uh, old legacy loyalty programs and the fact that people can direct book. And if you run a good SEO program, you don't need to pay 15 or 20% top line revenue to a Marriott or Hilton. You can now do that and get a premium and keep more profit and do direct booking through technology and uh, conscientious design. So that I'd say the next three years is, is very, very exciting for me and gets That's, me fired up every day. I can see that. Um, guys, I see 39 of you guys watching this live right now on YouTube, but I only see seven thumbs up, so I'm calling you guys out. If you guys are enjoying this, please hit that thumbs up. Uh, so this last question is a softball for you. Okay. What book have you gifted more than any other? I would say mine. I would say the uh, <laughs> uh, Catching Knives is, is the book I've gifted quite a bit. But um, you know what? Actually, I take that back. I've gifted George Perez real estate principles. I have a lot of them. I buy them as used books for like a dollar, and I just have like stacks of them in my office. For those that don't know, George Perez uh, started related company uh, in South uh, Florida. The first deal he ever did 
was an affordable housing deal. He made a million dollars. He came to America, to Florida with no money in his pocket. He's now a billionaire. I think they say he's estimated worth six or seven billion dollars. Wow. Uh, Donald Trump did his foreword that said he's the condo king of, of Florida. He's partners with Stephen Ross that did Hudson Yards or doing Hudson Yards and the massive, the largest development projects in the world. He's now expanding down to more uh, South America, still doing tons of stuff in, in, in Florida. I went to uh, FIU. Real estate or so powerhouse principles by George Perez is the book I've gifted the most and is my favorite book on real estate development that exists, followed closely by my book, Catching Knives. <laughs> All right. So I want you to think about what you, what you want to leave the listeners with. I'm going to make a couple of quick announcements. Uh, guys, again, if you got value, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. I, it really helps us reach more people. Uh, if you guys want to uh, check out our workshop coming up in February, you want to get on that wait list, DM me the word workshop on Instagram and we can put you on that wait list and then uh, tune in the first Wednesday of the year. We got Tony Javier talking about how he built his business around TV. What are the last thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Last thoughts. I think it, it has to do with something that you're kind of building out here. It's more mindset. You know, whether you're wholesaling, you're starting out, you're mid career, you know, you, you've had successes. Getting your mindset right, understanding that is the most important key element because it adds value to every single other aspect of, of your life. Your relationships with your partner, your kids, your parents. Uh, time, I said earlier, is, is finite. But even if time is finite, if you have a shitty, you know, depressed mindset, then it, it is not uh, of value. There are certain hacks in which you can do physiologically working out eating better doing those things will lead and hedge to having a better mindset and i'm not saying that you know people don't have sometimes chemical or other elements that exist out there but there are also a lot of things that people don't do uh to allow themselves to get in a, in a, in a bad mindset so mindset spend a lot of time focusing on that and uh, I think it unlocks so many other things in your life when you can get your mind right. That's, that's powerful. And uh, how can someone get a hold of you? Catchknives.com is where you can sign up for the, the blog, get updates on the book, uh, the podcast uh, where we started recording. We're actually going to release in, I think, late, late January, start doing some episodes not necessarily distressed, but contrarian investing. So we have some people, they invest in some SaaS companies. Uh, all of that's going to be at catchknives.com. Jake.realestate at Instagram or at Jake.realestate. Those are the two primary places that I'm most active. I know my team puts stuff out there on Facebook and others. I don't actually know how to get to them. Uh, I think it has something related to catch catching knives or somewhere. But if you go to catch knives uh, or company website is harris-bay.com awesome thank you so much this is fantastic thank you thank you guys for watching see you guys in a couple of weeks